0: Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you and ask that your word might be our rule, that your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and that your glory be our only concern. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, here we are, first Sunday in Lent. Can you believe it? Worked around it already. And as we know, as we found out, particularly on Ash Wednesday, Lent, uh, the Lenten season is a time of reflection. It's in preparation for that dark Friday, just to get us ready for that glorious Sunday that will be coming. And so, we look today at the passage of Scripture in Romans. and. Uh, big idea I did have was exactly what we sung, that God will make a way when there is no other way. So as we begin that Lenten journey today, the passage this morning is the Book of Romans. But I have to tell you that um, we have something coming from each and every one of the passages that we read. It's a beautiful passage, beautiful, beautiful things to see. If I were teaching a theology class, the areas that I would be teaching you today are are Harmar and Soteriology, the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation, because that's what this passage gives us. You may say to me that that's so academic, but I would say to you that the revivals that are taking place in Asbury and other universities and places around the world and places around the United States are based on hamartiology and soteriology. One of the things that I read as I've read about Asbury is that it was a time to take an inward look. It was a time of confession of sins, a time of recognizing who God is and what God has done in order to bring about the opportunity for these young people to come to a place where there was revival in our lot li- in their lives. You see God had made a way when there was no way to have peace and contentment in their lives. So let's take a look at what St. Paul has to say about hamartiology and soteriology and what pa- what St. Matthew has to say about sanctification. So as we look at the passage for before us today, The first thing that we note in verse 12, he says, "'Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, "'and death through sin, and death spread to all men, "'because all sinned. "'For sin, indeed, was in the world before the law was given, "'but sin is not counted where there is no law. "'Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, "'even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, "'who was a type of the one.' to come. When I taught over at Gray School briefly, I taught Christian education there, and we looked at Genesis chapter 3, just as we've read this morning in Genesis chapter 3. The question that I asked the students was, what more did Adam and Eve need to be satisfied in the garden? What other thing could God have given to them or done for them? That would have satisfied them more than they could have been with what he gave them. I'll ask you that question. Did they lack anything in the garden? Did they have everything that they needed? They did, didn't they? And isn't it interesting? We still have Genesis chapter 3, don't we? We do. So as we look at it, Adam had a problem. And Eve had a problem. The problem was, what was their desire? We all know the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had access to every other tree in the garden. The only one that they could not eat from was the one, that one tree. So what was the problem that Adam and Eve had? Tim Savage, who teaches leaders, said, There is more to the tree than merely obeying or disobeying. At a deeper level, the tree of knowledge of good and evil provides an opportunity to express delight with God and the life he gives. By standing over against the other trees of the garden, it presents an alternative path to satisfaction. By refusing its fruit, humans can affirm their entire satisfaction with God. For them, God is enough. In him, they discover fullness of life. So the problem was, what was the desire of their heart? The desire of what did they look for for satisfaction? Well, when they ate of that tree, what they were basically saying is, God, you don't meet our needs for satisfaction. That's basically what they're saying. You don't meet our needs for satisfaction. Now, what what Paul does with that in this particular chapter is say this. Adam is the beginning of the race. By the way, there is an Adam. I guarantee you there is an Adam. And I guarantee you that he was in the garden. And I guarantee you that he ate of a fruit of a tree from which he should not have eaten because he was told by God not to do it, because he didn't think that God could satisfy him. And when that happened, he sinned. That's what Paul was saying. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law, and we've read that. But Adam... Eight. The interesting thing in verse 12 ends, it says, because all sinned. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is that when Adam sinned, I sinned. I sinned. It's in the aorist tense. It's a point action. One act took place. Adam rejected God as being satisfactory for all of his needs. And when Adam did that, I did too. John Piper says this. Before the fall of Adam, man was sinless, and, went, and able not to sin, he was able not to sin. Now listen, listen closely, for God saw everything that He made, and behold, it was very good. But He was also able to. But He was also able to sin, for God had said, "In the day that you eat of it, that, that is the tree, you shall surely die." As soon as Adam fell into sin, human nature was profoundly altered. Now man was not able not to sin. In the fall, human nature lost its freedom, not sin. Before Adam sinned, he had a choice. He had a, he had a will that said, I don't have to sin. When he did it, he lost that freedom. Freedom. Number of years ago, when I was, uh, when I was working for the state of Florida, I was sharing uh, with folks that that you'll be hearing from because they do, um, they do things with foster children and for uh, uh, for other folks. Uh, I was uh, driving from one visit to another. I was a foster care counselor, and so I went to visit one family and then went to visit another family, and in the afternoon. I would listen to nPR, <laughs> okay, just want to make sure that nobody was throwing anything at me things weren't the way they are now, you know there weren't as m- back in the dark ages there weren't as many radio stations you could get on my car, so I was listening to nPR and a lot of times it was great to listen to it, but it was during this time of year, and someone was was interviewing a theologian, love theologians, and they were talking about sin. What the man who was the theologian said was, you know, God said that if you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. Satan said to Eve, if you eat of the fruit, you're not going to die. Do you know God was wrong? Satan was right. His thought pattern was they didn't drop physically dead. They didn't drop physically dead, therefore God lied, not Satan. But we have a misconception of what death is all about. Death is separation, right? And we talked about this before. You're going to go, he's going to tell us that thing again. It's separation. When I die physically, my body is separated from my spirit. There is a separation. When I die spiritually, I am separated. My spirit is separated from fellowship with God. Now You remember, before they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they did in the evening, right? They walked with God. They talked with God, right? But when... They ate of the fruit. God said what? Get out. Get out. And he cast them out of the garden. And guess what? They didn't walk at night. They didn't talk to God at night with the same intimacy. That peace and satisfaction they had with God was broken in pieces. It would never be the same. And that's what happens with sin. It doesn't give us peace. Pope Gregory in the 7th century and St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century laid out for the church the seven deadly sins. Pride. Greed. Lust. Envy. We'll skip that one. Gluttony. (laughs) Anger. And laziness. It's what they call. As we look at that list, there's perhaps one or more of them that stand out to us. Pastor Daniel Arroyo, in a, in a sermon that he preached, says Sins distort, Sin distorts our character. Sin is assumed to be part of our nature. Sin corrupts our thoughts, emotions, speech, and actions. Sin is worse than any annoyance, any regret, any misery. Sin perverts what makes us human. It distorts the image of God within us. Sin is what leads political leaders to commit fraud. Sin is what causes a peer to feel happy when his or her colleague receives sour feedback. Sin is when a drug dealer plans to hook a fresh customer with drugs. Sin is when a teenager mocks his grandmother. Sin is when we look at others, have high standards for them, but give ourselves plenty of allowances. Sin corrupts us, and sin, to be honest, is the root of misery. Because of sin, we experience loneliness, restlessness, shame, and meaningless. You want to know what is wrong with the world? Pastor Rorio goes on and quotes Albert Einstein, that theologian, who said, about weapons of mass destruction. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart. How powerful is that? All we have to do is look around. Pam and I last night saw a video from up in Bunnell, at one of the high schools up there. I don't know whether you've seen it six foot six, 270 pounds. An aide had taken something off of a student in class and this student at 6'6", six, six, 270, hits this aide, knocks the aide to the floor and immediately she is unconscious. Immediately he begun, begins to pummel her before students and faculty can get there and. Five people to pull him off of her. That's what sin does, my friends. Sin says that God does not give satisfaction to me. I will get satisfaction for myself. So we look to these sins for those satisfactions. And in that sin, we lose our shalom, our shalom. Our peace with God. Humanity, including you and me, we're no longer at peace with God. Other desires take us to other places to find satisfaction. When we look at this passage in Romans chapter 5, we find out that we were born into this. When we read over in Psalm 51, one of the things that David reminds us of that was in In sin, his mother conceived him. He's not talking about his mother being a prostitute or an adulterer. He's talking about the fact that when he was conceived, he was born and made a sinner because of what Adam had done. You see, he was looking back on what happened in the garden as well. David recognized that like Adam, we sin against God in that in, in, in the psalm what does he say against you have I sinned now let's face it he didn't commit adultery with God committed adultery with Bathsheba I have no idea why he was on the rooftop he was supposed to be out with his troops I don't I don't know what his reasoning for being there was maybe he was tired I don't know then he commits murder because he wants to make himself look good There was envy, there was pride, there were all of those things that were involved, and yet they affected the people that were around him. And yet he says, it's against you, God, and you only have I sinned, because he was looking for satisfaction in his life someplace other than God. Basically what we have in this passage is a theological term that's called imputation. All that means is that when when Adam sinned, his sin was imputed to me. You see, I don't become a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. This. Romans was the first book that I preached through as a you know, over in other churches, they can preach through whole books on Sunday morning. Did you know that they don't have a lectionary? Yeah, I, I preached through Romans. very first thing that I preached through. I'm glad that we have the lectionary. <laughs> glad we have the lectionary. but I preached through the book of Romans. I had just come out of seminary. So, of course, I knew everything that there was to know about everything. Actually, I found out very quickly that I knew nothing about anything when I got there. But I was preaching through the book of Romans. Our daughter was probably six months old when I got to this passage. She, She was the cutest baby that has ever lived on the face of this earth blue eyes you know you know what i'm talking about just a wonderful little girl and i took her up and i held her up and i said you see this little girl as beautiful as she is she's a sinner she's a sinner before god she's lost Before God, she has been imputed sin when Adam sinned. We don't like that imputation, do we? We're individualistic. Give me my own chance. Let me just say to you, you don't have a chance. So if you want your own chance, you still don't have a chance. Okay? You can try, but yet I don't have a chance. We're sinners. That's what that amounts to. And as sinners, we are separated from God. We don't look to satisfy ourselves in him. Normally, outside of Jesus Christ, we do everything that we can to satisfy ourselves in other stuff. David recognized, like Adam, he had lost his Shalom. And his desire was to have that peace. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, he says. That's what he recognized, that it was only through God and God's mercy and grace that he could receive it. So as we deal with this separation, Paul says that there's still a possibility of having peace with God. When in Romans 5.18, he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, For all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Through Christ, the many are made the righteousness of God when we read those passages. When we come to the end of the passage, we see that Jesus is the one who provides substitutionary atonement. He died in my place. I am the one who should have suffered for my sins. And yet God in his mercy provided a sacrifice through Jesus Christ. It is this time of year when we step back and we reflect on where we were, where we are, and what God has done that led things to the cross of Christ and then ultimately to the victory of the resurrection of Christ to allow life after death. David looked for the return of his joy in 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David recognized that God would use him to show God's grace. Isn't it interesting? What he wanted to do is when he saw that God is the one who brings satisfaction into his life, what did he want to do? He wanted to share it with other people. And I would suggest to you that that's what's happening in the revivals at Asbury, Cedarville, Texas A&M. Any one of the schools that you look at, we're taking a look and seeing who we are or what we have done. And we are lifting ourselves up to God and saying, I'm not worthy to be yours, but you made me, through Jesus Christ, your own. And when that happens, particularly in Cedarville, I know. They said, let's go out and tell other people about this great thing. You know? One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, and I've already told you this, is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees, sees God. He's high and lifted up. He sees the glory of God. What's the first thing he says? Whoa, it's me. I'm done. I'm, uncle- I'm a man who's unclean and I don't even have clean lips. And God takes that coal and he puts it on his lips and says, I'm sanctifying you. I'm I'm making you righteous before me. Now, you know what I want you to do, Isaiah? I want you to go tell other people about it. And that ought to be our joy, to tell other people about Jesus Christ. We come down here in this passage, and he says, and uh, we said, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification, to be declared righteous. That word means to be declared righteous. And how do I do that? It's by the word imputation. Yeah, we like this imputation. We like when God imputes his righteousness through Jesus Christ into us. We don't like the other imputation. But we like this one. You see? through the mercy of God that you and I have peace with God, where we can go back into the garden and we can walk with him and we can talk with him and we can know that he satisfies each and every need that we have. Our problem is, though, that we also still have that DNA from Adam. There are times, aren't there, when we go, yeah, I've got this temptation out there. How am I going to handle it? I love the passage over in in Matthew 4, don't you? Jesus has just spent 40 days in the wilderness. Satan comes to him and says, "I've got a deal for you." You know, and the thing that's interesting is Satan's basically saying to him, "I know you're the son of God. Take the stone. Make it bread." What is the reply? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Okay? There are two other temptations that come. Throw yourself down. His reply is, don't tempt. Who? Don't tempt the Lord your God. Right? Third one. Bow down and worship me. And i'll give you everything like he had, like satan had the power to do that you know and so what does he say you will not worship you will worship the lord your god only right what's the one word that used in all three of those passages god you see jesus found satisfaction in god his father and when we face temptations You and I need to find satisfaction in God our Father. Not in something else that we think will make us feel good. Because we'll end up like David. Go to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 shows exactly how he felt. He was miserable. He was miserable in his sin if you and I have a relationship with Jesus Christ and we come to those times of temptation, you know, it wasn't just the fact that he read scripture or quoted scripture back to him. That was good. But what did the scripture do? The scripture centered on what? God. The scripture is given to us so that we will know what to believe about God and how he expects us to act. What Jesus did. He knew about God the Father. He was God. I know. I know you're looking at me and go, yeah, but he was God. Yeah, he is. But you know what he's done with us? He's given you and me the Holy Spirit to indwell us and be in us so that God himself dwells in us so that when those temptations come, we can say, Spirit of God, work in my life. I can stand against the devil. I can use the scriptures, but I need to understand that what I am doing is I am being satisfied in God. Theologian Johannes Brenz in his commentary on Romans says, Adam bequeaths sin, suffering, death, and hell to his descendants, but Christ bequeaths righteousness, peace, life, and heaven to his. Adam imputed, the act of Adam imputed sin. The act of Jesus Christ imputes righteousness. As we continue in this season of Lent, I want us to remember that we are dust, and to dust we will return. But I also want us to remember that through Jesus Christ's sacrifice, we have eternal life through him and in him. In that life, we come back to have that ability to to choose to live in peace and be satisfied with God. I guarantee you that before Christ comes into the life, there is no possibility of being satisfied in God. Because the DNA isn't there. If we want peace in our lives... We need to recognize that God is the one who can fill the desires of our heart. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know why? Because our desires will change. Our desires will be to glorify him. And in ending, I have to give you the words of John Piper who says, God is most glorified in us. When we are most satisfied in him. We need to ask ourselves the question. I don't want this to be second second person singular. I want this to be first person plural. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, where do we find our satisfaction? Do we know? God gives us everything that we need to be His people, to have peace. Where's your satisfaction?